Welcome, CR listeners. This is C. Colbertson. I am an associate editor in poetry at Colorado Review in partnership with the Center for Literary Publishing at Colorado State University. For today's blog, I have on call Adrian Larson, whose book Human is to Wander was selected by Gillian Connolly for the 2022 Colorado Prize for Poetry. Adrian, thank you for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, so before we hit record, I had sort of had a few poems in mind and asked you to read, and you can just jump right into it if you'd like. Okay. Uh, um, this is Firsts and Lasts by Ones and Threes in the Schoolyard of Ghosts. And in one of those sort of happy moments, well, there's an epigraph at the beginning of it. All I need is the sound of their footsteps to tell forever which direction they took, which I discovered after the fact, um, reading Apollinaire. And in one of those weird sort of resonances, it turns out that I was reading it in a poem of his also called Procession. And it's sort of really sort of, I, I think, framed and resonated well with, with what I think I'm in some way trying to do with the whole book, but certainly with this poem. So, procession, firsts and lasts, by ones and threes, in the schoolyard of ghosts. All I need is the sound of their footsteps to tell forever which direction they took. I stepped up into the open doorway of a classroom. The dead looked like pictures of the dead, and even then, under a continual threat of being overwhelmed once again. When pregnant women stand still, bathed in window light, intently reading letters, where is one invited to imagine the letters are coming from? Does a schoolyard rarely matter? It was capacious, soft and reassuring. It radiated the same repose we had observed in her face, morbid fascination of dirt, blood, snakes, insects, smell, ugliness, deformity, size, and all that is grotesque everywhere evident in the book. But we are warned that she has premonitory dreams of attendance at the coming centenary of the secret society of ghosts. Reaching the field, I watched our local interhumway drill. They began shouting and waving their hose around. Birds everywhere, as well as garlands, bouquets of flowers. She believes in the coexistence of three different yet related worlds. However, I wasn't going into any of these. Well, I'm not going to. The more complete figures looked a lot like people, which they were once. They did not smell. So, as I make my way to the next poem, I acknowledge in the book, that's a collaged piece, and I acknowledge in the book all of the um, texts that the lines for that um, procession come from, and it's sort of like in one way key architecture to what I I feel responding to as, as, as a reader myself. Uh, by request, the next one is Seventh Song of the Child Soldiers, um, and it sort of occurred to me as I was reading through this book, once it became a book and I became a, a reader, not a writer of it, that um, this is the last poem in the book. And so in a way, it's sort of like the closure, but I think this book has two endings and this is one of them. 
and it sort of occurred to me that maybe I would read this one ending and then the second ending. But actually, what I think I'm going to do is just mysteriously read this one ending and leave it up to anybody who wants to read the book to decide what the other ending is. But it all just depends on your trajectory through the book. Um, seventh song of the child soldiers manifest song. Uh, um, I should say this, and maybe this is a, one of those terrible habits of reading poetry where you sort of like, I should say this before, but <laughs> I'm just going to say this before. Um, this was written, um, I was, I'm in California now. I, I spent quite a bit of my teenage years living in Washington, D.C. when my father, who's a South African journalist, was sent there. And um, I was in D.C. for the first time in a long time, and I had some hours to kill so I went down to the uh, the mall and I went to a handful of museums. And the last museum I went to was the Holocaust Museum, which I went to for the first time, which is um, quite, quite an experience and uh, a very different meaning of museum relative to the other museums on that Washington DC mall. And this was during the Trump years when everything felt dark and like we were watching a truck coming down a hill and thinking, okay, well, the brakes are going to work. So it's going to stop. Okay. The brakes didn't work. Well, that obstacle is going to, no, the obstacle didn't. And there was just this free fall sense of free fall that probably hasn't abated. While I was walking through the Holocaust museum, overwhelmed by what I was experiencing, I came upon a group of school kids in tan pants, white shirts, and red hats and you know what was written on the red hats and the juxtaposition of seeing these little shits walking through the holocaust museum was extraordinary and you know this isn't necessarily anything about the meaning of the poem but is a biographical detail that i think matters around the timing of the poem seventh song of the child soldiers manifest song not the cotton husks dried as they are in our lacquer boxes, nor the masks, angular blood casting shadows on the walls, neither the rabbit skins nor the hats, locks that stand for love, not the landscapes, western, torn from the frame, hand rolled gold and green gases of history, not the room full of shoes nor the train that brought them here. Not the hair, the straw, the bead eyes watching again as for justice. No limes, their stinging memory of seas and shaped progress. No basket of apples, nor the market boys carrying their weight and salt left to right across the page to an imagined queen. No plans for the new city modeled on what we remember of Mogadishu, Lubeck, Lagos, Penn, Cape Town. Not the chairs, helmets, violins, sextants, spears, and so on, nor collections of written clues, unless, of course, unless untrue. It had never been a calculation of need or destiny, truth be told, and there would be no room made for it now. No room for the middle passage either, nor the music born in cells, light as it was, light as it had been, mined, plentiful, held in red handfuls of mud. Listen here for the catch, the practice of song polished into voiced lines. No wagons either, old of course, and old 
when all roots from the capital. You understand. Thank you. That was lovely. And, uh, you know, maybe I'll just sort of kind of ask my first question and maybe bring that up a little later. But I'm just I'm so interested in these like, you know, so there's that that quote from your interview with Hank Russo and Tupelo, where you say to acknowledge fracture is to depart from the linear to avoid the obvious. And throughout the book, I, I see these sort of doubles, light as it was, light as it had been. And then in Psalm, there's that last line, unerringly gracious, not unlike an acknowledgement, should love ever experience love. And then you were talking about how there's sort of these closures or these two ends, depending on how you sort of enter the the book. So I wonder if you could sort of talk about that, sort of like putting this these words against each other and how what had been sort of interacts with the now and then how that's situated both in like what's happening in South Africa, but also uh, what's happening today. Yeah, um, I appreciate that question very much. Thanks, and I think I have an answer for you. I th- one of the I, I, my friends who know me um, know that I'm uh, that I preface everything, and it's sort of unavoidable for me just the way in which I construct my thoughts. <laughs> I'm sorry to say, but I have to preface this to say that um, I, I'm going to give you an answer, but I like to think of myself in order to make the answer make sense to my, to me and hopefully to others who are listening. I'm not answering as a writer. I'm answering as the reader of the book, its first reader. I mean, the book is is now in the world. The book sort of emerged onto some kind of field, some kind of page, and I took part in constructing it. I sort of like the whole idea Spice's idea of taking dictation from Mars very much as a kind of a perfect analogy. So I wouldn't ever pretend to fully comprehend what I was doing. And so as a reader, I can look for clues and find them. I have found things that I was doing and that apparently I seem to have been doing in the book as a reader that I'm happy to talk about. And it feels to me to a certain extent, like what I can say as a writer is give some kind of biographical framing that helps readers be better readers themselves, as opposed to me sort of explaining any point. And that's either gonna sound extraordinarily pretentious to some people or completely obvious to others, but that's sort of my stance and I feel necessary to say it. And as I thought through uh, sort of this point, I was reminded of a recent Bagley Wright lecture that I listened in on with uh, in which Cedar Saigo was talking about Barbara Guest, and he quoted Edwin Denby, who said, meaning is a peculiar thing in poetry, as peculiar as meaning in politics or loving. In writing poetry, a poet can hardly say that he knows what he means. In writing, he is more intimately concerned with holding together a poem, and that for him is its meaning. And I, I wanted to quote that because this idea of holding together a poem, if if there was one thing that I could say, not about the meaning, but about the approach, is that I'm very, very interested in this idea of echo because I find it writ large and small, macro and micro in my life. And if there was a, an image 
there are plenty of images that might suffice, but one of them that sort of really suffices for me is thinking about those old cameras where the picture you take, you only take when two lenses come together. Um, I talk about this also in the Rousseau interview, but it sort of certainly means an awful lot. I think for some people, poetry is the bringing together of those lenses and a clarity of image that the, you, you then click snap and you capture. For me, I'm aware of multiple lenses and the attempt to draw them together around some sharp image, but I'm much more interested in the standalone lenses before they come together. And that, I think, whether I intended it or not, I'm sort of saying this in retrospect, was certainly of great interest to me. So, for example, from a biographical point of view, I think of, I, I'm in this country as a white South African who grew up in the, in the years of apartheid because my parents had no interest in um, participating in that world, wanted out, didn't know what the outcome would be. And on a very, very specific in the weeds level, simply did not want my brother and I to um, have to go serve in the military after high school or college if we had deferred it. So take a word like troop, which appears in the book. They did not want me to be in any form part of a troop. And then at the same time, we're talking poetry and song and music. It so happens that my brother is actually a musician. And then there's the other word troop, which sounds exactly the same, right? And but it's 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 the opposite. It's the it's music, a musical troop. And I, you know, I think that I could spend way too long and sort of ruin it for everybody just going through and looking at the echoes and resonances of this book. But um I talk in that interview with Hank Rousseau about a particular executive from Intel who went to Central Africa to, this happened in the 90s. I think he was on his honeymoon with his wife and he went to Central Africa to look at the gorillas, to, to you know, tourist hike, gorillas in the mist, what have you. And his um, hiking party was kidnapped by Interhamwe, who are funded agents of total chaos in a place that is fueled, in which the conflict is fueled by an undying appetite for resources, for minerals, many of which are used in the chips that fuel um, communications around the world. And um, so there is a sort of a, an, an absolutely tragic and horrible resonance to somebody from Intel going to that part of the world and being killed as he was by the Interhamway. It makes you quickly think of military intel and then it makes you think of narrative intel and so when i think to myself about this book and i try to understand it for myself i find myself sketching um, triangles an awful lot in which words that sound a lot or sound exactly the same are on different corners of these triangles and there's something in the center of them that doesn't create meaning but comes alive as what I think of as the poems of these of this book. And so I I read that <clears throat> Denby quote because more intimately concerned with holding together a poem and that is for him its meaning. Um, the sort of the triangulation of sound and meaning is a is a is a frame holding together. And out of that I feel is the spirit of this book. And then layered on top of that is pure biography. I happen to be from South Africa. 
um, I happened to have left so that I didn't serve as a soldier in Angola as I very well might have had to. And I live in a country in which I thought I was leaving behind all of those fervent minority nationalistic populist um, racisms and authoritarian fascism. Um, but it turns out that I, I didn't at all. It's just has a different flavor and a different color here. And I tried to register that in some capacity. And I think it's very much an echo. It's an echo when you leave a country like South Africa and believe that you're leaving behind racism for this country that is idealized for its quality and find that it is singularly racist. And here we are. This interview is taking place on a day in which everybody feels like democracy is about to fail. All of these echoes of my past, um, I thought I'd left behind and they're returning. And so to this point, I think in a very long-winded way, there's just layer upon layer upon layer of chewing on and coming back to words that sound a lot alike, but actually are very different in meaning, if that makes any kind of sense at all. Yeah, it does. and. Um... I don't know. I, I'm what I'm sort of thinking about now, and I, I'm really picking up on this like kind of triangulation of, you know, as you were describing before, your sort of role is writer, but then also first reader. And then the relationship between those two positions and, you know, the reader who ultimately picks up your book and, you know, reads it blind, right? So I'm thinking about the ways we communicate with each other when, for example, and this is actually at last year's uh, AWP, I was listening to um, Kazim Ali talk about how um, when visiting basically where he grew up, he realized that when he sort of conjures the word tree in his mind, that specific tree, the kind of forest that was there in his childhood is, is what is conjured, right? So my point is, is that when I say something like war or politics, labor, what you conjure in your mind is probably likely different than what I'm thinking about. So there's always this, like, to use the word again, fracture between what I'm conjuring when I think of a particular thing and what you're thinking of. And then it's like, how do those two things meet, right? And how does reconciliation happen? And I, I guess that's the great problem of the sort of political and global climate today. And there's a question in there somewhere, but I wonder if you could talk about, like, media and communication and what separates like communication through poetry from communication through music from communication through some other sort of medium? Um, sure, I'm happy to. And I think I, I think I get where you're going with, with that in, in terms of, of the question. You, um, you, you're throwing me a, a softball in, in one part with that question uh, when I say that, of course, we all feel that poetry is music, right? Um, so no difference there. The music is what I'm, and I'm sure everybody else is hopefully responding to to first on that sort of spectrum between um, sound and meaning. 
Yeah, that's a that's a really, really interesting question that you've asked about media. And I have great difficulty fully understanding how to answer it with maybe just a few sort of anecdotal replies. Um, you know, you and I have had some back and forth leading up to this and sort of talk about documentary poetics and I mentioned collage. If I had my way, I would not have included the notes at the back of the book um, because I think, so many of my favorite poets whose work I just sort of am deeply enamored with that I can live with forever, I see them as I see their work as a as a sort of like a testament, a record of a lifetime of readership. They're responding to texts themselves. And so there's this sort of like realm of the world, of, of the word. And just sort of quickly as an aside, talking about music, one of my favorite musicians who has a sort of a very psychedelic approach to his life and is famous for it perhaps, um, thinks that the world he creates when he's playing guitar is as real as the world that he physically lives in. And I certainly think that that is an apt image, metaphor, analogy, whatever you want to call it, of the, the, the world of words. You are um, given a chance, usually in sort of some fragmentary way, to have a window into a much larger world, a world of connotation, association, the world is larger than the words on the page. The words on the page let you into that world. And that is just an absolutely pleasurable form of reading. And so for me, I don't want to be too biographical. Part of the reason why I want to dissociate myself as a writer from this conversation and more of a reader is because I think it would just ruin it for everybody to be like, this is what I had in mind and hear all of the notes to support it. I'd rather just go explore a world that now exists in this book together with, with people or let them do it by themselves as I do it by myself. All of this is a very long-winded preface to say that there are some very specific things that I'm talking about in this book that might answer your question about media. So for example, one of my memories as a child is watching the news. And there are two definitions of news in the Angola section, which is sort of set up as this very strange collection of definings. And one of the things in the news that happened at the end of the news is they would list the names, another definition in, in this um, book of the soldiers who had died in Angola. And I just have this very distinct memory of this as a kid watching as the news ended in South African television, which sort of like as propagandist as what we're seeing in the US now, um, just a scrolling of names of the white soldiers who had died in Angola. And um, so to a certain extent, one of the things that emerges, particularly in the um, middle section in Angola, is a kind of um, an acknowledgement of or a response to or engagement with the role that media plays in the narrative and tapestry of nationalism. And I mean, their phrases and the notion of nation and uh, anthem and all of the rest. So I was very interested early on in this book and the way in which the media told the story of the, of the country that you found yourself in and what that meant to you as a citizen. And, you know, there's some references. There's one um, poem that ends anthem, song sounding a footfall, 
or muted tap on glass way to measure time but no longer reflect it so a certain way in which the, the rise of the of the of the glass screen that everybody's tapping and the total loss of meaning of 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 anthem we live in a time in which there is no relationship between words used and meaning and we are in the midst of an election at a time in which language has completely lost its meaning this is a question of media right and so it's i mean i don't know if i'm necessarily answering your question but that to me is what i think about when you ask about media today and one of the sort of triangulations of this book is that i am of africa i was born on that continent my european history brought my um great 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 grandfather there but i'm not necessarily african and so i'm in a very tricky position when i'm telling the story and i'm interested in being able to convey a certain amount of this sort of the biography of having left south africa which is what the angola section does i'm also very very interested in registering finding myself as being of africa in the us and finding much of africa in this country largely invisible unacknowledged erased and i'm also interested in what is happening in africa in general um and certainly in the conflict regions of central africa also largely unknown and ignored and that's a question of media and why much of the first part of the book relies so heavily on text in its creation and as i refer to with this sort of intel incident we live in this time in this world in which technology allows everyone to communicate very very fast and frighteningly i mean just look what's happening at twitter as we're having this conversation um and all of this technology is built using minerals that come from places like central africa which fuel these conflicts which nobody knows about so there's a lot of talking and very little actually being said which feels a little like what i'm doing right now but anyway my point is made. um thank you <clears throat> you know i i mean i feel like there's a couple a couple places uh we could go and it's like you know do we go into theory and talk about like so for example yourself as this speaker or these different speakers you inhabit throughout the book all sort of relate to the world in a certain way through webs and networks of different uh interactions we can say but maybe that's a little too cerebral and we could also talk about this discourse on tongues um i hear in a lot of your response this kind of field of of voices that cannot but sort of reply with the background and the and the material conditions and the landscape and the political realities that they know right and the particular objects and relationships in their world so this was actually the last question i sent you but i'm really interested in how it relates to this kind of thing because i think you're developing a sort of cosmology there's this she her figure and then there's this he which seems at times the universal and the individual subject it's always following listening re-saying retelling 
And that, that seems to be actually really prescient, like in terms of how we continuously tell stories and construct and reconstruct the idea of the human, the idea of community. And so, yeah, could you talk about that cosmology and this relationship between this sort of feminine voice or I don't know what she is. And, and, and then this listener that, you know, sort of reappears. Yeah, I really appreciate that. And I wish that I, well, I'm glad that I can't tell you because that would just not be as much fun. But I, I, I hear her too, and I see her too. I think that at the start of it, there's this impulse, as, I, as I've said somewhere else, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a white English-speaking male. I'm a representation of, well, I'm part of the most overrepresented demographic in the world. And so maybe one gesture is to just stay silent, right? And so personally, I just can't imagine having the hubris to say something without acknowledging a feminine voice guiding it in a way. And I, I, I hope that comes across meaningfully and not as some kind of possession, which is not what it intends at all. And so I, I just couldn't imagine doing any of this without that sort of acknowledgement of, I, I don't know who she is, but she's there and she's everywhere. There's also this sort of other aspect to it that sort of occurs to me after the fact, looking through the book. Um, and I think that to some degree, maybe I did have some of this in mind, but it's sort of really fascinating to me as an immigrant um, to consider that when people sort of talk about the native language of, of, of a person, one's childhood language is inextricably connected to the landscape from which they're from. I mean, you were sort of saying this earlier where you say words that other people say or hear and have entirely different meanings for. And it's sort of this inextricable link between childhood native language and, and landscape. And that's called one's mother mother tongue. And it's fascinating to me that that's in fact the case and it makes perfect sense. It's a sort of an embodiment of, I think, what we're trying to say here. Um, and then in this sort of triangulation, that's on one corner. On the other corner is the actual tongue used for actual speaking or for the making of sound and for the reading of poems and the use of a particular kind of oral language, right? And then it's impossible if you're thinking through a book like this or writing a book like this, to not also contemplate the cutting out of tongues, which happens around the world all the time to human beings caught up in the worst kinds of conflicts. And it certainly happened an awful lot in some of the conflicts that are represented in the books that I responded to in Central Africa and certainly not limited to there. So there is a line in um, one of the poems in the book, Here Lies a Mother Tongue. And it's sort of like, maybe it's all of those meanings. Maybe it's actually, I mean, I hate to be this graphic and gruesome in this conversation, but a, a tongue cut out of a mother's mouth as happens and happened all the time. And it's the lying of your childhood tongue, language failing us. Um, and everything in between that. Yeah, tongue and music. Music. I mean, you know, as 
you sort of ask a twofold question about that female presence and the tongue. On another level, sometimes what has occurred to me as I've been reading through this is this uh, sense of Odysseus and his story. And I, I wasn't a soldier, but I am largely living a life in which I'm never going home. But I'm kind of like the anti-soldier. Like I left home in order not to be a soldier. And therefore, we return to troop, T-R-O-U-P-E, versus troop, T-R-O-O-P. And I think that there's a sort of inextricable link, as heavy-handed as this feels, between Odysseus and the females in his life, and the soldier away from home, or the non-soldier away from home. And, you know, uh, there's a line in, in the opening poem, smirk of a muse. Maybe she's a muse. Thank you for that answer. Um, <laughs> actually, actually, um, I'm gonna, uh, if you don't mind, I'm going to interrupt you and keep on going and just say, for yeah, example, yeah, please. So um, one of the things that I haven't really sort of said yet that that of I, I, I hope that people listening sort of get the sense that either I'm just sort of absolutely scattered and disassociated and it's like, what is he talking about? Or it's sort of starting to make kind of sense. Mm. But in the middle section, Angola, actually, I had the most intent in mind as I was putting that together, which is, you know, you talk about repetition. Um, and you also mentioned at one point in time when we were having back and forth, Vano Kapil, uh, I don't know if I'm pronouncing her name correctly, but, and her, the sort of the trauma of migration that she touches upon. That section, Angola, is a series of quote definitions explanations there is in that section an awful lot of explaining that is attempted and it is definition and once a word is defined it is used to define the next set of words and there's sort of two things going on there one is just a nod towards the absurdity of the public discourse around politics and war and leadership and governance and social i mean it's just absolutely insane and then but on the other hand I sort of think that one of the things going on perhaps is trauma. The way in which if you come upon a scene of an accident and the people involved are like, did you see that? Did you see that? And then they just repeat the story over and over again. And they're trying to create narrative of, of meaning out of something that is absolutely traumatic and violent and chaotic that occurred to them. And it's sort of like the the voice of a victimized someone or subject of violence in some capacity repeating over and over again what it is that they are trying to understand happened to them. Um, that's very much part of this middle section and it sort of permeates, I think, into into the other sections. So I when I when I went down the road of Angola, the middle section, I had small children and I was remembering my father trying to explain to me what was happening in South Africa relative to the war in Angola. And I remember the conversation very well, even though it's hard for me to replicate it. I can see it and hear it inside my head, but it's very hard to sort of say it out loud. Um, but my version of what my father said to me when he explained Angola to me is what I think I started to do when I wrote the Angola section for my children, explain to them what war is. And it just falls in on itself and repetition and absurdity, because how can you possibly explain something like that? How could you possibly derive any sense and meaning and order out of the pure chaos of the violence and conflict of this world. And 
there's very much not just this relationship between the, the he in the book and this extraordinarily important female presence, this she, but also I think a relationship between parents and children. And that comes up in many different ways, child soldiers. But for example, there's this definition of the word skirt in the Angola section. And skirt, I think of children holding onto the skirts of mothers. But it's also a troop of soldiers skirting an enemy camp. And for me, that's sort of probably a fairly decent example of some of what we're trying to talk about here, where it's almost certainly very much both and maybe some more. And as I go down the path of thinking about that as a reader of this book, there was one time when I read all of these definitions, I just sat down and read Angola from start to finish. And when I was done, I thought to myself, okay, maybe that was written in which we were supposed to expect the voice of the section to be one voice explaining something, trying very hard to explain something and returning again and again to the strategies of explanation. But maybe every line is a different voice. And I read through it again, and I really loved reading it that way. And I don't know which it is. And it's probably up to others to decide for themselves which it is. But for me, this book falls apart an awful lot. It's not situated perfectly. And frankly, that's exactly the way I would want it to be. As, as I was preparing for this, and as we were talking leading up to today, one of the things that I did on my travels is, is I picked up the new and collected Dion brand. I've only really made my way through the, um, I'm very slowly going through the introduction because it's so beautifully written. And the person writing the introduction calls out a Dion Brand line where she says, quote, uh, Dion Brand wrote, all this became ordinary far from where it happened. And to me, that is a line that you could build a lifetime of art and poetics and social commentary and witness around i mean it's sort of like yeah that's the world we live in violence conflict dispossession everything becomes ordinary everywhere except where it happened that kind of distance covered is precarious fraught confusing filled with echoes requires absence requires repetition and then somebody like Dion Brand comes along and says it so absolutely eloquently. All of this became ordinary, far from where it happened. That's right. Mm, That's yeah, absolutely right. Well, that's lovely. And it and and I, I wonder if because uh, we're we're reaching sort of toward the end, but I wonder if if we could stop there. But I am also sort of stuck on, um, and you you sort of mentioned this before we started the. The conversation, but this line in the first um, troop, when truth is reason enough to kill, and mud becomes a uniform insanity, it is the system that begins when planning is neither overt nor over. And then the following line, the yam is a nuisance, but it allows naming as a form of answer. So I'm from, from, you know, what you've just sort of described and then this sort of um, 
Yeah, I'm 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 wild with thoughts right now, actually. But I'm wondering it's about lovely. but I'm wondering about about like I guess I guess what I'm wanting to to arrive at is like does somewhere in this like kind of search for coherence is there an anticipation you know in the form of that answer like a future you know possibility of what could be maybe that's kind of a huge question but um that is a huge question and um i don't know is the answer maybe uh maybe i mean it's sort of like it's interesting i mean the I feel like you're asking me these amazing questions and I'm giving you answers that have nothing to do with them. And, but, but hopefully we're there. Um, maybe I think that, you know, my one answer, and it was lovely to hear you read this work. Thank you. Um, and my short answer is to read back to you a different definition, which is, um, the poem form, which is a one line poem, which is, Exit the camp at noon, find the rhyme in hope and group. And to say further that, you know, as I was thinking through this book and what I might say about it, it comes from a very important place inside of what I think of as my life, the sort of collection of experiences and memories and thoughts and readings and what have you. But it's not a complete picture. It is almost an exorcism to have gotten it out. So I'm, I'm writing right now, but um, writing from an entirely different place of my life that feels more whole. To a certain extent, I think of this book as a coming to terms with citizenship to a certain extent, um, which I'm, I'm now a citizen of this country, but you know, where am I from? And where am I? What am I doing? And there's a certain amount of trying incessantly in this book to locate in space and time and it's now done and um in answer to your sort of your your question in which you're sort of asking about the future i see this book receding into the past because it can and the future feels very different for me and i believe and hope that what i'm writing is actually i mean obviously informed by everything i learned doing this book but but different I don't know how else to answer that. I also think to some extent that um, my hope is that we can, to some degree, escape the past. I mean, it's it's despairing. I mean, I'm, I'm absolutely stating the obvious here, but it's really despairing in the, the 2020s to feel like everything that was so hard earned and won in this country in terms of civil rights and human rights and everything we're seeing erode is eroding because for some people, the civil war never ended. Um, for some people, Jim Crow never ended. For some people, I mean, it's uh, it's just one data point, but listening to Ken Burns' um, documentary on the US um, relationship to the Holocaust, the language of over almost exactly a hundred years ago is contemporary. And it's horrifying. On some level, it's sort of, I think that one acknowledges those things and then also really hopes for a different future. Um, I don't know if that necessarily answers your question, but I think to a certain extent, that's how this book ends with a sort of an inventory 
of the past and its uselessness. So and you sort of mentioned wanting to read these poems or this poem um, earlier, but I wonder if to sort of end, if you would read unit. Sure, absolutely. And I'll just say for the sake of people listening, you read to me troop, the first troop, T-R-O-O-P, and then right after it is the second troop, T-R-O-U-P-E. And there's a line in there, remembering to replace insect with inspect and range with engage before asking what moves a unit and um, which takes one to, to unit. So here it is from the Angola section, unit. To say uncle, but to mean north, to turn national interest into a form of training or when what's normal occupies a notion and what repeats captures reason in its own trap how the antelope listens for the truth and how the entrance informs the exit. How hope is simply the trick of rhyming between nouns. The enemy becomes a song held by time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah.